Welcome to the Queen's Return on Innovation podcast. This podcast is about sharing the success stories and lessons learned from experts and entrepreneurs from Queen's and Eastern Ontario. In this episode, we're pleased to have Dr. Elspeth Murray here. Elspeth served as the Associate Dean MBA and Master's Program since 2012 and has been a Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the Smith School of Business since 1996. She also holds the CIBC Fellowship in Entrepreneurship and founded Smith Center of Business Venturing. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Murray. So let me start with a definition. There's a gentleman in California named Stephen Blank that defines a startup as a temporary organization designed to search for a repeatable and scalable business model. And so from your perspective and all the programs and teachings, give us some color what that means for a student that might be thinking about trying to take a crack at a startup. I love that definition. And I think it uh, I think it captures all the messiness associated with finding a real problem to solve and doing the the research and the testing and the digging around and the finding co-founders and raising money and initial customers. It sort of captures all of that work up front until you sort of hit that gold vein where you say, yeah, now I've got it figured out exactly what this business is going to be and we move on. And I think that's what Blank was really referring to. It's that it's that period of time, however long or however short, where you're you're searching um, and experimenting before you you get the thing. Absolutely, it becomes a very iterative process. So, thirty years ago, somebody might have had an idea for a software product. They'd spend a year coding it, developing it, writing a hundred-page business plan, launching it, and then crossing their fingers and hoping they would get market share. Much different in today's day and age with the methodology of lean startups. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, I never, never see long business plans anymore. I might see a, a deck of 20 PowerPoint slides, but and I tell my students, do not sit down and write a business plan. It's an antiquated view. You may have to do it, but back to Steve Blank's notion of a startup, you're only ever going to write the, the lengthy, brutally detailed document once you've got it all figured out. So if you picture a student running away on the treadmill on the Athletic and Recreation Center saying, well, okay, I found this podcast and I'm listening to this, what types of things could we advise them to think about? And the first one I'd like to chat with you about more is the concept of an idea versus solving a problem. So say you're an engineering student and you come up with a new way to measure photons, just as a probably terrible example from a scientific (laughs) perspective, but uh, that's an idea. But what kind of problem does it solve? So I guess, should should students thinking about, or anybody thinking about entrepreneurship, students are in the community, be thinking in terms of a lens of, I need to identify problems that customers need solve that they're willing to pay money for, versus a light bulb moment saying, wouldn't this be a great idea for a widget? I think it's, um, I mean, it's the front end part of the the startup phase, which is trying to figure out exactly what it is you should be doing. And what I find interesting over the years that I've been involved in the entrepreneurship and innovation game is that um, you can start with a problem and get lucky right out of the gate that you've kind of, you know, nailed it. You know? Or you can start with the, I have this product in mind called, you know, a new umbrella that won't, um, you know, get wrecked in the wind or organic um 
pet food or pet food based on, you know, cricket flour, for example. And it doesn't, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter where you start. But what does matter is that at the end of the day, you define exactly what it is the problem that you're solving. And you and I have chatted often about the uh, the rise of design thinking, which to me is less about a, a process and more about a way to think about always coming back to, well, you know, exactly what is the problem. And I, I like to use the umbrella example. You know, is it really about an umbrella or is it about staying dry? So once you, and is it about staying dry when there's no driving wind or is it about staying dry, you know, when there are gale force winds? And so um, I always encourage students to uh, understand how design thinking works because it really sharpens the focus and helps avoid starting the whole thing with the wrong premise. Absolutely. If you've got a narrowly focused problem, you can design your solution and test it out in a very practical way. If you read books like Peter Thiel, who talks about uh, zero to one, zero to one as an example, a lot of the teachings from Y Combinator and others say you really need to spend time early in a startup doing things that don't scale. And really what that's designed to do is make sure you've got a very clearly defined problem that you can go and find customers that are willing to pay for your solution where you're absolutely delighting the customer. Yes. And then expanding out from there. So don't try to boil the ocean right from day one. Find the way using design thinking and, and some of the things you've talked about to really sort of nail your niche area. Hopefully it's big enough that there's an addressable market to expand, but that's the, the approach uh, most people should really think about if you're leaning towards entrepreneurship. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thought I I talk a lot in my classes about time T1 and T2. And so T2 is, you know, the the grand vision of the future about changing the world or, you know, dominating a market. Um, but really what you need to focus on in the early days is time T1. You know, your first product, your first customers, your your first everything, your first go-to-market strategy. Because without that, the rest of it doesn't matter. And I, I think I, um, would-be entrepreneurs sometimes stay at too high a level with the grand vision uh, without sort of saying, uh, how do I just get going? Like, what is the first leap that I take? When you look at a lot of great companies that have been formed and you look at their first product, it's almost always nasty. They don't get it quite right. It doesn't work. It's buggy. You know, I was just actually reviewing the history of Dropbox. And um, it's a very interesting story. I know we're going to talk about minimally viable products shortly. It's a fascinating story on how he just kind of locked on the fact that people were having huge problems sharing big files. Yep. And so before coding anything. He had a, a video, an incredibly buggy prototype, and uh, he just popped it online. And he was just looking for feedback. And it was such a huge problem. And so many people were looking around for a solution. You know, they just piled in and signed up to test his beta product. And it was that it was with that data and that encouragement where he sort of said, hey, like, I think I've locked on a legit problem. So now with this confidence, and we can come back to confidence, with this confidence, I now know I can go to the next level, whether that's quit your day job or, or investing in joining a venture club or taking a course online or at Queens, you know, doing the certificate in entrepreneurship or something like that. So uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to look at, at the challenge of the start. Absolutely. With the procedures we're talking about here, you can really get a good idea if you've got a chance at getting traction 
before investing a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of those things that really allows you to be iterative so that you're focusing on those aspects of the problem and the solution you're developing. You know, going back to our previous point, I think people being entrepreneurs and starting a startup need to be comfortable with almost doing things that don't scale for longer than you would expect until you've really achieved that product market fit where, and it's hard to describe, but I think most people that have it describe it as you know it when you get it. So in your drop-off example, it's a few days, they probably had thousands of email signups. That's a great sign that you've got, you've got good, good traction to move forward to the next step. And, you know, when you bring up um, a great point, I think many people view the art of the start, uh, as uh, Kawasaki would say, great book, by the way, The Art of the Start, an old one, but at the beginning of, of all of this wave, so well worth reading. There's a lot more discipline associated with being a successful entrepreneur. So there are, I think there are a lot of myths out there. Again, you're on the treadmill, you're in the shower, you come up with this great idea, you know, it works out 100% right from the get-go. And that just doesn't happen. And so there is this systematic approach where just as we were discussing, you sort of, you have an idea, but, but what's the real problem that you're solving? So you kind of lock on that. Um, but e- even even before deciding, back to the Dropbox example, that you're going to pursue this, there's almost an initial screen where you go through, you know, some high level criteria where you're saying, like, could this possibly work? And and that's what I call the fatal flaw test. Like, unless there's a fatal flaw for you as an entrepreneur, then then you pass it through to the next level, which is okay. Now I'm going to spend some time putting a buggy prototype online or, you know, soliciting uh, input. So that that initial stage is is really around, like, let's just dispense with stuff that you can never get excited about. And, and you know, passion is so critical Absolutely. to making it through that messy startup phase. Laws of physics, could it actually work? You know, what's the, what's the tech? Is that possible? You know, is the timing right? Blah, blah, all, all that stuff um, is part of that more disciplined process even before you get to the, the MVP testing type stuff. Right, and without those, let me call those obvious knockouts, exposing your idea, product to the world is really the best way to figure out whether you're on the right track. Yes. And use that feedback to iterate quickly to get to something where you feel you've got that I would almost call it magical moment or that moment where you feel you've connected with a group of users that have a burning need to solve this problem and are willing to pay for it. Yeah, exactly. I think the other thing, and I know we're going to talk more about this, is in in that initial search phase and sort of the the knockout round, if if you call it that, that's a great time to figure out who who you want in the boat with you. So how you how you find co-founders or coders or marketers or salespeople who who can have the same passion for what you're trying to do and who who believe in the problem that you're solving. So there's almost a it, it sounds terrible to say but there's almost a a process element here which is you need some vehicles to kind of test and learn about the people who you want to go into business with and I think a lot of would-be entrepreneurs skip that step. You know, you go a little bit further down the road in the whole startup um, process, and then you say, oh, holy mackerel, I need people to help me. It's like, well, maybe you ought to think a little bit sooner about that. And, and this is the story of Evandale Caviar.
so before we jump into that, because I think that's a fascinating story that serves as a great example of what can happen when you're diligent, relentless, and some of those things. The question of a single founder versus a team in moving a startup forward, a lot of work out there would say single founders typically would have less of a chance of being successful, but that's not to say there aren't good examples. What's your view on single founder versus a team? It's really simple. I think it's really tough to be a successful single founder for for a variety of different reasons. And you alluded to one of them. It's hard work. So it's it's way more fun if you're sort of sharing the hard work uh, with someone. So that's number one, you know, support in dark moments or someone to party with when, when things go really well. But I think more pragmatically, the other reality is that it is very rare to find all of the skills and capabilities and DNA required to start and scale a startup in one individual. You know, we often we often see the outside person in these very successful companies because they were sort of the, the sales, PR, tell the story. But almost always, there's someone behind the scenes that's actually, you know, at a certain point working, you know, on the business instead of in the business, you know, doing doing the details. And and that's kind of the killer combo here. So uh, I always suggest to students do not try and do this alone. It's a risk factor because it's uh, highly unlikely you bring everything that's required to the party. It's just not possible. And as you're thinking about putting a team together, really think about complementary skill sets. So four engineers starting a company may not be the best idea if everybody's in the same discipline with the same background, et cetera. But an engineer, a coder, a marketer, that's where you can really start getting backgrounds that complement each other and have logical divisions of things to do in startups that keep you all moving forward and contributing equally. Yeah. So it's very interesting when you look at the composition of teams. And there's some really interesting research that I always share with students. And uh, it's very simple. If you are... Um, exploiting an existing market. So you're creating a business that's a lookalike to the Caspers of the world, like an Endy or Lisa, the, ma- the mattress business. Then um, having a bunch of like people on your team that are easy to get along with, they do need some complementary skills, but it's kind of like everyone's more or less the, the same. Maybe they went to all the same schools, blah, blah, blah. That's no problem because you're just... It's not that hard what you're going to do. But right. if you're going to do tr- something truly challenging, and we would call those uh, um, explorative ventures, then you really need to max out on the diversity. And uh, the evidence is right. really clear. But as you, as I think many people know, the more diverse the group is, the more challenging it is to keep all the, you know, the horses in the race, so to speak. Um, but absolutely, it's uh, a team. A team is vital, and and you need to really understand what you need in that team as it relates to the specific venture you're pursuing. So that's one of the things that actually I think is challenging with some of the the self-help books out there is that they have a surface level pass as to how you do this without yep. going to the next level. And, and I think that's what it's all about. Uh, when you are in a university environment or a college environment, at school, wherever, is that you would expect that you you get that deeper understanding of exactly what's required. It's the most vital part of starting a business up. You got to get the people right. The the books that you read about in terms of 
why reasons uh, reasons startups fail is you end up having team dynamics where there isn't a fit and it's a competitive world out there. If you've got a team that stumbles for a few months, you may miss a window. Somebody leapfrogs you. You get Humans. you get caught up in a do loop. Whatever it ends yep. up being, you really end up helping. So, so being very mindful about that and uh, having a complementary team with a shared vision and having an agreement ahead of time as to how the team's going to work together and have the hard conversation of, well, what if one of us loses interest? How do we deal with that? Having all those conversations up front can really pave the way for being successful. I agree completely. It's one of the reasons I suggest very early on for uh, entrepreneurs, like find a couple of advisors, really good people. They are not your friends. They're not your family. Great They've uh, seen the movie before and, and a really great person will take you and your co-founders, sit you down and say, here are the 10 things you need to discuss write them down on a piece of paper and deal with them early on because it just gets more difficult, if not impossible, later on. And at the end of the day, you know, we're humans, such is life. I think that's a great piece of advice. So again, if you're, you're a student or a community entrepreneur thinking about starting a company, try and find that mentor or advisor that's a bit of a been there, done that type person with the experience because that small interactions doesn't have to be a full-time person. It can be somebody that's been successful and wants to give back, whatever the scenario is. In all the success stories we've seen in, in my role, there's been the strong element of those advisors yes. and mentors early on to help steer, guide, have a perspective where you're not necessarily in the weeds. Yeah, and just avoid the common challenges. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, CB Insights, which is a great online resource, uh, published a study of the top reasons why startups fail. And I think number three is that the team implodes. So uh, right up yep. there. So this is these things are avoidable is really the key. Yep. So um, time and attention early on is critical. So let's jump back to something you mentioned earlier in our conversation. Evandale Caviar, take us through that fascinating story that's turned out to be, uh, I guess, generating somebody that's really become a rock star of entrepreneurship in the Canadian landscape, if not much more broader than that. Okay. Um, it's a great story. And actually, um, we've written a case study on it. So I happen to have uh, a lot of the details and was lucky enough to actually have the three founders, Michelle Romano, Anatoly Melnichuk, and Ryan Marion, write part of that case study and just really explain their experiences. So great. it's sort of a classic tale of what you would hope would happen uh, at Queen's. So these three um, engineers met in the uh, engineering program and entrepreneurs by nature, so to speak. And what I found really interesting about what they did was they had a systematic search for the business idea. So they met after classes and, you know, they looked at information online, they brainstormed, they had quick screens that I alluded to before yeah. to kind of quickly dispense with stuff. They had a little bit of a taste of what was possible because Michelle was involved in the tea room and right. uh, and kind of starting that up. So, you know, once you get a taste for that, uh, you realize that you can probably do just about anything. Back to Evandale. So this is how it went. They were brainstorming ideas. They were uh, had some criteria about, you know, it would be great if it was sort of in the, the luxury goods industry, um, certain time frame. So they were kicking around an idea of growing exotic wood. 
trees to make high-end furniture. Oh, wow. And literally, Anatoly said, well, if we're going to grow anything, why wouldn't we grow sturgeon? Because the world uh, population of wild sturgeon has taken a massive hit because of pollution in the Caspian Sea. So thanks to the internet, you know, you're online and you're looking at, okay, what's the supply and demand situation? They found a huge imbalance. People still want caviar, huge market for that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But no supply of wild caviar. So Evandale caviar was the idea of farmed caviar. So just like farmed wow. salmon, okay. this and no one had done it. Wow. So they they just dug in and uh, started to do the details around, okay, well, what, who eats caviar? What's the problem? You know, the, the wild caviar, because of the pollution, tasted horrendous. So, wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, I know, exactly. Yeah. So I won't go into too, um, too much more detail there, sure. except that the three of them kind of built their camaraderie, their rapport, their their desire to work together. They got to know one another through the search process for Evandale Caviar. And then you have three engineers, one who's really interested in sort of sustainable farming. Uh, and I believe that was Ryan. You have Anatoly, who is an amazing sales, marketing, negotiator. And you have Michelle, who kind of sees the big picture multi-skilled, great sort of business um, head, and she was doing her uh, MBA at that time. In those days, you could kind of sketch out the business, write a short business plan, yes. and pitch at these business plan, business plan competitions, and right. they won 100000 bucks. Wow. Exactly. They won first prize or second prize at all these competitions. So then what was really interesting was they uh, spent a summer in New Brunswick, in Evandale, actually fishing okay. wild sturgeon. I guess a, a supply chain question. Absolutely. Where are we going to get the... And also proof of concept. Okay. And so, and demonstrating that this wasn't just like a school project, that uh, this could really go somewhere. And there are all kinds of great pictures of them fishing for sturgeon. Now, these were wild sturgeon, so it doesn't really validate the, the um, farmed... Uh, end of things. But they um, cut a deal with Health Canada. They rented lab space. They figured out all the regulations and everything. Uh, and they sold, um, they packaged and then sold the caviar from their motel room to chefs across Canada. So kind of validating a, a bunch of things. So I always say that that was kind of their MVP proof of concept. They never did pursue the business, and part of it was because uh, timing. So it was 2007, 2008. Um, okay. That was the yep. great financial crisis. Yeah, that's a tough time, for sure. All of a sudden, it's not cool to be swilling crystal champagne and stuffing your face with caviar. Right. And it's quite a regulated environment. But what they instead decided to pursue was uh, they set up a business, a group buying business like Groupon called Bytopia. So the three of them set that up and, um, you know, had quite a bit of success, so much so that a product they created internally called Snap Saves was acquired by Groupon. Oh, wow. So Michelle and Anatoly left to go work at Groupon yep. as part of the kind of the bio clause. Ryan yeah, stayed yeah, yeah. to run Bytopia. Um, and then uh, the time at Groupon was sort of up and, uh, and Michelle 
who is now, you know, a Dragon's Den star. She and uh, and uh, her partner, Andrew D'Souza, have created ClearBank, which is yet another story of how you start with one view of what you think the business is going to be, time T1. And while you're messing around with that, you figure out what the gold vein is. And so they are, are now vital to the startup um, ecosystem in terms of funding, marketing spend. So that's kind of the story of Evandale. Yep. And there's so much more to be learned there. But it's just a cool example of, of how you can do it right. It's inspiring to see how the group found a common mindset and were very iterative about yep. and process-oriented about the kind of things they wanted to tackle. So they, they had the categories they wanted to tackle, and they were looking for something that needed more than a 10x improvement, essentially, in the yeah. marketplace. Where is there such a big gap that the burden to get into this marketplace will be... I want to say almost frictionless. Now you're saying broader market conditions yep. led to them moving on to something else, but... Having a startup and not having it work out is really almost a badge of honor. I wonder in Canada if we're at that stage where a wrong step discarded is still an important step forward, and it's sometimes not the first startup that becomes successful. And, you know, thank goodness this group of founders continued on because we're now got folks like Michelle Romano, as I said before, yeah. rock star in the Canadian entrepreneurship landscape. Uh, incredible that they've decided to do that startup, largely in Toronto, as I understand it, versus doing something like that in Silicon Valley, which is great for our country. Oh, it we've is. Got, we've got groups like Shopify that's turned into big unicorns. Maybe ClearBank will be the next one. From where they started from, I understand ClearBank was focused on helping the gig economy finance their right. their job. So how, yeah. do you, how do you get Uber drivers paid more quickly? And much like they pivoted through every other venture they went through, they eventually, looks like they're scaling up quickly. You, so. you never know until you start. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, um, on our um, Master's in Management, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship program, there's uh, one of Michelle and Andrew's um, uh, employees who's uh, who's taking the program. And what he told me was that uh, Michelle uses the Evandale example to illustrate a very important point here, which is, you know, you fail hard and you fail fast. If it's never going to work... Uh, as a mentor of mine, John Kelly uh, in Ottawa said, right. "You know, when the horse is dead, dismount." And so you need to <laughs> That's do a good idea. Yeah, yeah, you need to do that early yeah. on. And so there's nothing if it doesn't work out, it's it's not really a failure. We would call that intelligent failure, right? Because you know the the unintelligent part of it is to pursue it when it's it's never going to work or it's never going to work for you. So th I think that's one of the keys uh, to success here. And so I've, I found it interesting that Michelle talks about that as a, you know, as a smart thing to do, as opposed to, oh, gee, it didn't work out. And and I think we're, I think we're getting there. I think we're over that hurdle now. If you've hit futility by whatever criteria that <laughs> exactly. ends up being, right, you should... Pivots and, and move on. Right? Yep. That's yeah, that's exactly. the challenge where it's 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 entrepreneurs that sort of continue along doing the same thing. The dark sort of side over of persistence. Over. That's right, absolutely. So you and I have met many years ago. You were on the board of the tech transfer office and I was a PhD student looking to help co found a company, which I was given the, the fortunate opportunity to do. And back then, I'm gonna say back in the day, but the startup ecosystem was still growing in Canada. Back then, there was technology transfer offices, and then the, the arm of the government called the NRC, Industrial Research Assistance Program, was putting money into startups, but not much else. And so fast forward today, it's fascinating for me to see how much the ecosystem, and particularly the support systems, have grown up and the avenues you can take to 
commercialize your ideas. The, the, the cost of computing, what, you, know, you name it, the cost, the threshold has come down so much. I assume you'd probably agree with me, but give us your take on what the environment looks like now and the, the arguments for there's really ne never been a better time to think about starting a startup. Yeah. Well, I'm nodding my head here, but I, yeah. I, I will just say I, I agree completely. And it's so interesting to look at the uh, the prog progress that's been made in the last you know, 20, 25 years, all the way from the top. I mean, you now have governments that recognize that the vast majority of job creation is not coming from big companies, but coming from small, medium-sized enterprises. I mean, this is what we're talking about here is that those get created. Uh, you know, as small companies that that every now and again, like Shopify, turn into big companies. So, right. I th I think that is sort of a, a high level comment leads me to all of the other things that are so different now. You know, it's cool to be an entrepreneur. So when you talk yeah. about societal norms, you know, in the in the days of uh, Faxis Therapeutics, it was right. unusual. Absolutely. Uh, and I always joke that um, you only became an entrepreneur 25 years ago if you couldn't get a job in a in a big company. So it was it was sort right. of a weird it was sort of a weird thing. And I mean, that doesn't exist anymore. You have lots of students who are saying, if I'm going to work really hard, why wouldn't I do it for myself? Absolutely. Um, so you you look at traditional sources of uh, what I call friction uh, that existed before that that really have gone by the wayside. It's really easy to access capital now. We have crowdfunding. We have organized angel investor groups. We have lots of government programs. We have grants. You know, the, the internet is the great leveler, so access to markets and social media, Instagram, Facebook, uh, you name it, allows you to access people, you know, anywhere, anytime. Right. Uh, so that really helps on the sales and marketing end of things. You have back-end infrastructure companies like the Shopify's of the world yep. that make it really easy to, you know, to sell online and ship stuff around. You have all kinds of... Uh, um, businesses as part of that you alluded to the gig economy right yep. um, so Upwork Mechanical Turk Fiverr like you name it so access yep. to talent also means that you can create virtual teams so it, it doesn't really matter where you are to a large extent right uh, we have a lot of experience with virtual teams now so how to make those work lots of help out there uh, in terms of incubators and accelerators uh, that just those nurturing environments that give you access to advisors that we talked about earlier you know and if you're making stuff too the the rise of 3d printing and prototyping facilities all of those things that we have here at queens yep. they make it incredibly easy today to take the leap and not a leap into the great abyss but the the leap into the world of possibilities and and very easy access to all the things that will risk reduce what it is that you're trying to do. And and that's why I think there's never been a better time. Because we talk a lot about startups, but but all of this is directly related to how big companies are responding to the world of disruption. Uh, and uh, so understanding how to do this stuff well, you know, how to solve the right problems, how to be scrappy, to start something up in time T1, how to 
how to ask for resources. You know, you look at our banks, our insurance companies, retail, you name it. Everyone is trying to figure out what their next wave of success will be. And uh, so I would argue that uh, every student needs to know how to do this. Becoming entrepreneurial are all the same skill sets. And so navigating and showing your value in a bigger company will serve most people quite well in their career. Great, great point. Okay, so with that, I think we'll end there. Elizabeth, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. And for those of you listening out there, hope uh, if you've been on the fence about thinking about a startup, I think the advice you're hearing today is if you feel passionate about it, you've got a group of people with you that feel similarly, there's lots of resources on campus uh, to help you. Try and take the plunge and see what happens. Yeah, knock on a few doors, attend some networking events, go to a conference, put yourself out there. You know, the worst thing that can happen is that someone says no, and then you just have to knock on another door. And that's how I met Michelle Romano. She knocked on my door and said, uh, I'm doing uh, the tea room. I understand you can help me. And I said, no problem. Uh, so uh, this is a great university environment, and that's what we're here for. Thank you very much. Thank you. And with that, we'll conclude this episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, like, and subscribe to this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about research, innovation, and entrepreneurship, please see the show notes for a full list of programs and services available here at Queen's University.